the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. We're back again. How are you, Lindsay? I'm, um, let's see, how am I? I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm doing okay this week. What about you? I'm doing okay. I'm mm. always uh, I'm always happy when we get to that day where we get to talk about movies. I know. So. I, we spend a couple weeks, two weeks preparing for an episode generally. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when it comes to this point, I'm ready. Game. Yeah. Every time we do a movie for the podcast... You know, I generally watch it two, sometimes three times. Yeah. And uh, sometimes we do some pretty heavy movies, so that second or third viewing can, <laughs> can you know, I'm like, like yeah. I, I don't want to watch this just quite yet again, but I, I believe of all the movies we've done, uh, this is a movie I think I could just watch and watch and watch, and I never get sick of it, and that's Joe Dante's The Burbs. The Burbs. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled that we're doing this film. I know you sh- have shown this movie quite a few times in your backyard, yeah. right? Uh, this uh, let's see, this last July would have been our fifth, our fifth year of showing it annually. Is it always on the same weekend? It's always on uh, right around Fourth uh, of July, um, just to kind of celebrate the holiday, and we always serve uh, pretzels and sardines and <laughs> and brownies. And for those of you that haven't seen the Burbs, or it's been a little while. Yeah, pretzels and sardines. They make a big. It's a big. It's a big scene. They make in a the big movie. scene. Yeah, I think it's great to do this one. It's a fun film. I think it's one that didn't. You know, it's it's now it's considered a cult classic, like a lot of movies that we've done. Um, but it's one that I still think is not seen by quite a few people. Um, it was definitely a movie that failed at the box office, and it didn't really get much of a chance um, upon its regular release thirty years ago. It is the thirtieth anniversary of the Burbs. Which is exciting. And it looks, you know, aside from some things, I mean, this movie still looks contemporary to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, and a lot of the ideals are, are pretty contemporary. A lot of the humor and satire, I think, it, uh, is applicable today as it was 30 years ago. Yeah, and that's saying a lot for the idea of what American culture or, the, you know, suburban yeah. society um, really hasn't changed all yeah, that much. Yeah. Just swapping out the technology, that's the only, yeah, that's really, yeah. only big difference. No one has cell phones in this. Yeah, but. Oh man, this movie, this is another movie that probably couldn't exist. You just Google what your weird neighbors, wh- yeah. like their name, yeah, they and find out what their what their history was, yeah. if they'd been arrested, where they lived before, you know, movie be over in five minutes. Well, there's a, though this is a uh, comedy, there's quite a bit to talk about. You know, there's a, you know, this is a huge cast, an excellent cast, uh, ensemble cast, which we always love talking about. Yeah, um, this movie is kind of chocked full of a lot of people. First, starring Tom Hanks, uh, mainly Bruce Dern, Carrie Fisher. I love her role in this. Corey Feldman, um, on the late '80s part of his career. Rick Duhamel, and let's see, who else do we have here? We've got uh, the uh, Joe Dante crew that he cast of characters they always uses: Henry Gibson, Wendy Shaw. Uh, Robert Procardo and um, Dick Miller, who I love. Yeah. I'm sure we're going to talk about the cast and how they all interact in this movie and make it work. The themes 
overall general satire on suburbia and a little bit deeper than that yeah. too but without being without heavy being heavy-handed or having some type of like message yeah really. this is definitely a very i think a relatable mm-hmm. movie but yeah not yeah like you said not heavy-handed yeah no um, but definitely is you know satirical and sharp definitely talk about joe dante's career um he's a filmmaker that that I truly, that we truly do love on this podcast. Um, and he's one that, you know, we've really wanted to, to get in here for, for one of his main films. And even if you don't know him by name, you have seen his movies. Yeah. We'll, we'll go we'll, into we'll that. We'll get into his career. And as far as the burbs go, I'm sure we'll be talking about how this is a hyper stylized movie, how there's a specific look to it. And also how it's a little bit of a throwback to, Movies of the 50s of when Joe Dante was growing up. Speaking of how stylized this movie is, um, it's been a while since he's been on the podcast, but uh, Justin Hayward is back and he will be breaking down the scene for us and kind of going into um, how stylized one of the uh, scenes in The Burbs are. I don't want to give anything else away (laughs) because I always love... He, he, he's going to say it better than I ever could anyway. It's always a surprise. So we'll have Justin Hayward here talking about a scene from The Burbs as well. We love it when he's on the podcast. And then also uh, we'll do our picks of the week. Um, I went Joe Dante as well for my pick of the week with his 1993 film Matinee with uh, one of our hometown heroes, John Goodman. I could have gone for just about any Joe Dante movie, but I went the tom hanks route and specifically since tom hanks and carrie fisher were in a movie called the man with one red shoe i decided to go with that one i'm excited to hear you talk about this this is one i (laughs) man i don't know that i've seen since i was a kid so you and a lot of people (laughs) yeah kind of forgot about that one Mm -hmm. well those are our picks of the week so you'll hear about those we'll round everything out with our murray moments but before we get into our first fun clip from the burbs Lindsay, can you break it down for us what's going on in this movie what's the burbs about Sometimes the idea of suburbia for some folks seems very appealing and pretty tranquil in some ways. And for others, it is mind-numbing. So for the Burbs, um, we find a um, specific group of neighbors who, you know, all seem pretty happy in their lives. Maybe it's a little mundane, but they're bored enough to start thinking that their weird neighbors that just moved in might just be part of a satanic cult. I mean, you know, we've all been there. I've definitely thought I've had some weirdo neighbors. Yeah, I think we've all can relate to having peculiar neighbors. (laughs) Now, satanic cult, maybe, maybe not. I've gone there. Definitely like a serial killer. I've I've lived next to a few serial killers in my life. Yeah, and I, I, but this definitely is a I think a well we'll get into it. But I love how it can show how your mind can play tricks on you. How this oh movie, man, things can escalate pretty quick in your mind. It plays on so many things that um, I, I I think get the relatable laugh out of us. Well, uh, we'll go into a clip from the Burbs, and then we'll come back. We'll start talking about it. I can see the news report now. They were a quiet family, kept pretty much to themselves. No one would have ever suspected them of foul play. I've never seen that. I've never seen anybody drive their garbage down to the street and bang the hell out of it with a stick on I've never seen that.
I say we go over and get a look in those garbage cans. Well, call me overly cautious, but don't you think that's going to be a bit suspicious? The three of us going through the garbage at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of a rainstorm? Affirmative. That garbage is going nowhere. I say we wait on first light. Scope me. I'm out of here. Rain delay. Bummer. Hey, Ray, what was that you were saying the other day about uh, half-cock theories, I think, to tell you? Uh, Ray. So there's so many great lines in this. It's just endlessly quotable and uh, much respect, much uh, kudos to Dana Olson for writing the script. And uh, Dana Olson, during the making of the Burbs, he was actually on set for the whole movie. There was a writer's strike going on, so he couldn't actually do any rewrites. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, it's thankful for a movie to have such a witty cast of comedic characters who, you know, actors, comedic actors who can, you know, improvise and fill in the blanks if need be. But I think this is a very solid script by Dan Olson. Uh, it has all of the wit and humor. And I think, uh, you know, granted you have to get comedic actors that can sell these lines cause you know, it's a somewhat silly premise and yeah, very silly lines. And, you know, you get the wrong person saying these lines, they're not going to come fall off flat. You know, we'll get into the themes and stuff, but I think this is an excellent script, and I think it's somebody who's who's very observant of human behavior and finding the the sort of silliness and humor in everyday life. And with Dana Olson being on set, I, Joe Dante cast him as uh, one of the cops. Yeah, in, in there, and he said that you know he can't do any rewrites per se, but he can you know maybe whisper some things if he has some ideas. Yeah. Something like that. And as the story does take place in kind of anywhere USA, the idea was to set this in in an actual on-location place like Ohio, I think, was one place that was talked about. But I I think it's going for a, a Midwest feel. But it was Joe Dante that really thought that in order to extract out kind of the ridiculousness of of the plot while also making it kind of having that movie magic behind it, he thought that all of it needed to happen on set on a soundstage. Yeah, and this is actually a, so this is shot on the Universal lot and mm-hmm. movies that Joe Dante grew up on watching where all the movies were set in. Uh, on sets, on back lots, you know, um, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of movies were shot on location for a more naturalistic look. But I think it really works for this movie. And I think right away when you see it, you're like, this is off. You know, it looks it, it looks kind of fake. You know, the neighborhood looks almost like too perfect. And I think it really works for the film. I also, uh, just a little behind the scenes trivia, um, a lot of the actors really loved the fact that they shot this on the (laughs) back lot because you know it was in LA all the actors live in LA and they said it was like one of the few times where their job was kind of a nine to five thing where they got up they drove to the set they shot for like eight hours and they got to go come home and stay at their house at night they weren't like in a different part of the country and like in the jungle or in some you know and live in water in some kind of like crazy situation so they said it was a very controlled very fun and uh lively set and another thing with that too is that they were at at one point they were the only film that that was being made at that point i think the other one was the sequel to fletch 
And so it was just kind of not busy other than the universal tour that would occasionally pass by and interrupt. I mean, I don't think it would actually interrupt filming because they couldn't afford to stop filming. They just kept well, kept going. Well, there's definitely some scenes that you can tell are clearly ADR'd in this. And I know Joe Dante was saying in a discussion that... Uh, mm-hmm. he, they did ADR a lot of stuff because when the tour was going on, you'd hear people going, Ooh, and ah, and like, mm-hmm. you'd hear the tour guide all over the microphone, uh, saying they're sh- shooting a movie right over here. So they would have to, you know, cut that out of the final sound mix. And Justin, for our listeners, what is, what does ADR mean? Uh, additional dialogue recording. So that means that, um, if there's you know, a plane flies over, something's bad, the actors will come in and they'll basically redo their lines over the image of, you know, the pre-recorded image of them and try to mimic best that they can. But it works a lot of times perfectly on a wider shot where you can't really see the actor's mouths. Yeah. But a lot of times if it's a medium or close-up shot, and you've probably noticed this before when you've watched movies in the past where their lips are moving and they don't quite match up and the audio is a <laughs> yeah. little bit too clean. It, like yeah. You get this like really clean, like mic'd, close mic'd um, audio. Um, but usually it works if it's a fast moving scene, you don't really notice it. But there are a couple close up scenes where you can kind of tell that they did that. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do to make it make it work. Yeah. And I, in another interview with Joe Dante, he said that he... it. W- it was because of this instance when he realized, oh, this is why so many movies that I loved growing up, the the audio sounded so hollow and weird. And it was because it was cheaper to, you know, dub the audio in rather than reshoot what, what they were already being shot. Well, uh, let's get into a little bit about um, just the themes of the burbs and what's happening in this very sort of crazy story and in very very satirical world um, of this uh, clean-cut suburban neighborhood I think this movie does the excellent job of being a satire being very sharp being very witty kind of skewering this life of suburban life of people go to the suburbs and they have kids and they don't come to the city anymore and they become these weird yeah versions of themselves I think that this movie does a really great job of satirizing that without being extremely cynical, which I think sometimes is a really hard thing to do. And I feel like a lot of times movies can do that. Satires can do that where they're skewering a a part of life and it almost seems too mean spirited to where it can be funny at times, but the cynicism comes through too heavy. And I think it kind of ruins some of the comedy. You almost feel like, you know, this is, it's making fun of somebody, not so much like, making fun of the situations and this movie I think does a hyper stylized version it does this like exaggerated version of suburban life without you know being mean-spirited yes I'm over here nodding and I couldn't agree with you more that there is nothing mean-spirited in this movie and if anything it is not necessarily poking fun at or saying that there's anything wrong with suburban life just the the things that come along with that for some folks, they, they know exactly like what's happening. It's all planned out and it's all easy. And I think this movie is playing upon the idea of being bored more so than it is being mean about a certain way of life. I think this is a play on how controlled a life can be when you live in an area where not a whole lot happens, where not a whole lot is going to interrupt your day 
of something without you knowing it. You know, mm-hmm. in the city, it's like we both live in the city of St. Louis here. And just sometimes just going to the grocery store can be, <laughs> you know, before I even get into the door, I can talk to like five people who are like asking me questions. Like, you know, it can be a very in, highly yeah. intense situation. So, you know, and, and I think in, in the way that living in the suburbs, not a lot can happen. So there could be this like level of excitement when something out of the ordinary does happen, you know, in the city, about 10 out of the ordinary things happen to me on a daily (laughs) basis. So like, I don't even like blink at it anymore. I'm just assuming that some weird crap is going to happen to me when I need to go down to, to get a you know, a couple beers from the gas station and you could do a whole movie on city life, a hyper stylized version of how weird things are. And there, there are movies like that, like after hours or movies where they are, are sort of doing lampooning city life. And I think this movie does a great job of showing, you know, this sort of like controlled lifestyle of like nothing really happens. And then when something out of the ordinary does happen, something is peculiar that invades their neighborhood, which they've all tried so hard to live this quote unquote normal lifestyle. Nobody can deal with it. And then they become a, they become obsessed with it. And eventually they become kind of the weirdos. Like if you're on the outside looking in they're they're, they're the ones that are digging through trash cans and doing all these like weird things because they've become obsessed with their neighbors and finding out if they are these sort of sinister characters that they've built up in their heads. I think it, the burbs is a good kind of like push and pull thing between being somewhat like playing off of the idea of being, you know, xenophobic versus also the dangers that can come along with feeling insulated and feeling protected. And then like you need to immediately defend yourself against anything that's out of the ordinary and when you're used to something and used to nothing getting in the way and everything always just kind of working out right when you have something that throws a wrench into that or that is out of the ordinary obsession develops really quickly or at least trying to solve the mystery or creating a mystery even if there's nothing there which the burbs does a great job up until the very end of you know, you're not really sure if these guys are just bored and and making up that their neighbors are, are you know, Satanists or if it's them that are that are really the weirdos. And, and another thing I love with this and with the script is that while it's giving you these sort of clues as to whether the neighbors may or may not be yeah. these like heinous characters that are killing people and burying them in their backyard. You know, we're given little things along the way, but what I really like about the script and the way it plays out is that it doesn't get repetitious. There's speculation on what's going on with their neighbors. Then they, you know, try to go over in the night and investigate things and they see something kind of wacky. Eventually the whole neighborhood gets involved. But what the script does, and I think what's really smart to do in a movie like this, especially in the comedy, is you keep pushing the story forward by escalating the situations, making them get bigger. And then eventually there's this sort of like explosion of like information and and like characters like break, you know, coming to the breaking point and all coming together and helping each other out or like defeating the conflict of the story. In this case, them finding out what the neighbors that they are suspecting are really doing. You know, the movie really is fast paced and I don't think that it sort of like keeps repeating itself. It keeps giving you information 
and it keeps putting the actors in really fun situations. Um, it doesn't ever get old to me, you know, them like, you know, an event and there's not a whole lot that happens. It's like basically them sneaking around their neighbors trying to find out what they're doing. But I think they there's really like creative ways of, of making that happen and keeping the movie fun and keeping it going without, um, like I said, repeating itself and like getting boring. You have to have that escalation in, in each one of these instances, because if you don't, you have the same joke that's just beaten to death. Like, like when you're watching a Saturday Night Live skit and you know that it's failing. And I mean, anything that has the same joke and repeating it, and then it ends, and you're just kind of like, "Well, that was kind of a dud." This it escalates to the point of a, like you said before, like kind of figurative explosion, but also in this a very quite literal explosion. When you have a character, you know, Tom Hanks being the main central character, uh, he starts out as a cynic, you know, and then eventually becomes the leader of the pack, you know, like he, he, he leads them into finding out, you know, and then ultimately finds the truth, you know, and then ultimately resolves the situation. And so you have a character who comes full circle. And I think that that's a really wise thing to do, again, especially in a comedy, because a comedy so many times can be live and die by the jokes. This movie can be looked at a, a few different ways. You know, whether it is judging your neighbors just based on speculation or what they look like, or the idea of just being kind of ignorant in some ways, or burying your head in the sand like Tom Hanks's character tries to do a few times or just pretending like it's not there. Or even like they're, the guy's wives, you know, kind of putting it down and saying you guys are overreacting just all of these different type of reactions and I think another thing that is is very obvious in this is watching these grown men start to act like teenagers or start to act like kids and the one or two kid mainly Corey Feldman is kind of the audience kind of the observer the uh, the adult that's just watching it happen and the wives of these guys that are kind of being reduced to acting like adolescents are more like mothering characters, which I, th I think it's really obvious when you watch the movie, but it does create this whole other line of humor um, that weave throughout the very obvious plot. Yeah, I think there's a great dynamic between the characters and there's a lot of room for them to sort of like flex the comedy and their acting and in the situations um we'll come back we'll go to another clip we'll come back we'll talk about that we'll talk about the cast and their interactions and then we'll get into a little bit about the career of joe dante do you know what this is it's a bone it's a femur it's a femur bone a femur just happens to be a human thigh bone right wait how do you know that Biology 101. I mean, look at the size of this thing. You think this came off a chicken or something? Where the hell did Vince get this? He dug it up from underneath the fence. Ray. Ray, there's no doubt anymore. This is real. Your neighbors are murdering people. They're chopping them up. They're burying them in their backyard. Ray, this is Walter. No! 
So like we were saying before, you know, having a cast like this in a comedy is kind of a godsend. I mean, having actors that can play off each other, especially in ensemble comedy, and especially in a lot of scenes where you have, you know, four or five actors on screen at once and they have to interact with each other. Uh, A lot of times, you know, especially if you have your... you know, two or three comedic actors, you can sometimes, it can almost be too much. You know, everybody's trying to do their thing, but people play off each other so well in this. And so many scenes where you have, uh, you know, three or four actors on screen, I think that there, you know, there's just like this great give and take um, and it just keeps the comedy flowing. Some of my favorite scenes are between Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher. And I feel like a lot of those involved quite a bit of ad-libbing. And another thing with the comedy and all of this is I, it never seems as if there's anyone trying to outdo the next person. It all seems very equal and very such a good ensemble piece. And they're thinking about who they're sharing the scene with. Yeah. Car- Carrie Fisher is my favorite character in this movie. Yeah. And I think what Carrie Fisher does that's so fantastic is I think in most movies that kind of set this kind of thing up, uh, her character would have become the quote unquote, like annoying wife, the nagging, annoying wife. And I feel like she has spun that character and made her the voice of reason in this movie and like questioning what her husband's doing and questioning what his friends are doing and trying to deescalate all these situations. Yes. But she adds, I think some of the best humor, some of the best looks and some of the best lines come off from Carrie Fisher. I think she's like absolutely brilliant in this movie. Yeah, after a couple viewings, I, I I went back and forth on who I liked more in this movie, but I have settled on Carrie Fisher as well, too. And, and it is just for that reason, because her character could easily be a, a throwaway character or just someone that doesn't really matter too much other than to be the, you know, antithesis to what Tom Hanks's problem is. But she adds so much depth, and I, I you know, that is... um that is Carrie Fisher. That's what she can do. And I think, and I think because she builds this character, that's not a pushover. I think Mm -hmm. it makes it even more, it makes the scene even more intense when Tom, you know, after they've gone after her, the, the, the wives and the husbands have gone over to the house and, and met the Klopek family, the, the ones that they're suspecting of, of murderous crimes. When they get back, Tom Hanks is like, no, the, you know, the women are right we need to chill out. And because Carrie Fisher's his, because his wife has not been a pushover character, it makes it all the more funny when he's like convinced them that he's into them. And then he meets his friends in in the back room and is like, no, I know what's going on over there. We need to wait till they go out of town and act fast and and go over to their house. (laughs) And I think it, and what I, uh, but because they've built up this great relationship between Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher, you feel sympathetic to Tom Hanks character because he's kind of like going out of his mind and she's comforting him, but she's also like wanting him to not hang out with his friends anymore and keep going on with these shenanigans. And so it just makes it even all the more funny to me because she's built up, they've built up this relationship. It makes it all the more funny to me that he's like going against her with his friends to, to like break into their house at the end. 
And it is funny, really, too, that she is perfectly acceptable as his wife. They seem like a couple, but also as this weird mothering figure, too, when it when it gets way more involved in Tom Hanks's obsession and and palling around with his friends that are, you know, coming up with these conspiracy theories. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, like with Tom Hanks, you know, the so much has been said about Tom Hanks. It's like, what what more can you say? You know, he's considered... Uh, you know, an American icon, a classic actor, you know, he's won multiple Academy Awards. This is my favorite Tom Hanks movie. This is one of my favorite Tom Hanks performances. Uh, I watch this and I, and it, I, re, I can remember how witty and funny Tom Hanks can actually be. Unfortunately, we don't see that too often in his movies anymore. He does bring it when he does interviews. You know, I've saw a recent interview with him on Jimmy Kimmel back when he was promoting... Toy Story 4 and you just or remember you just, you're just reminded of how much wit and how much comedic timing he actually has and you know and I get it you know he's he grew out of that you know he did more serious movies but this movie actually came at a time in his career where he was in the slump you know he did this he did Bonfire mm-hmm. of the Vanities he did Joe versus Volcano and all these movies were bombs And I can see why he kind of was like leaning toward, well, maybe I should try something different and do something more dramatic. And to me, I do consider this to be one of the last films in the Tom Hanks canon of comedy. I mean, he did give some humorous moments in movies like that we did before, like A League of Their Own. But to me, this is like one of the last of the full-on Tom Hanks comedic role where he's like got the whole physical comedy thing going on he has the whole hyper intense uh version that he does this the spaz of himself and I think that this is like one to me he like honed it in so well and to me this I think is like 100% pure like adrenaline funny Tom Hanks it really was a league of their own I think where that transition between being dramatic and comedic were were evenly matched. And it's not to say that in, in some of these comedies that there weren't dramatic moments because there were, there were a ton of them. But it's also funny to me that a newer generation looks at Tom Hanks as this Oscar winner and like movies like Forrest Gump and Apollo 13 and, and all of these movies that he's gotten a lot of Oscar recognition for and is regarded as the Green Mile, like all of these movies that he is touted for, for being a great dramatic actor. And I think it's easy to forget that he started off in these comedies that are gold and they're, and they're because he has such great comedic timing. And I, I want to move on to Joe Dante, but you know, much props to the, uh, the other comedic actors in here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bruce Stern, who has always been known for his more dramatic roles earlier before the burbs and certainly afterwards, but, for as ridiculous as his character is, he's he's pretty darn funny. And Rick DeCommon, who plays the best friend Art, he was a stand-up comic, R.I.P. He's also passed away. And he's also in so many bit roles in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, this is really one of his few, like, kind of big co-starring roles. Yeah, he did such a fabulous job in this movie, too. I think he plays off Tom Hanks so well. I think he's, mm-hmm. like, the yin to Tom Hanks' yang. I mean, they're they're sort of in this together and I don't think that the movie would have, I don't think it would have sucked you in as much without his contributions to like, you know, kind of pushing Tom Hanks's character into this journey of like yeah. finding out what these, what the next door neighbors are doing. 
And as as much as Corey Feldman had had a career before this and after this, he represents the audience and he's kind of just there, but he's doing what Corey Feldman can do so well. Yeah, and, and to me, I, I hate to say it, but I feel like this was like the last Corey Feldman sort of performance where he's like the lovable goof and yeah you know he I mean and, and I feel bad you know he he like many young actors kind of drifted into sort of like a sea of like movies that weren't quite up to par with like you know what he had done in the past but I think he does like a really gives like a really genuinely uh fun and funny performance in this yeah and props to Corey Feldman man that guy is still going well before we hear from uh our good friend Justin Hayward. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Dante and briefly talk about his career. I love Joe Dante so much. I think this is Joe Dante at the peak of his powers of directing and and honing in his craft. Uh, Joe Dante had a great career. He started off. Uh, he I, if you if you're familiar with Joe Dante's podcast, um, the movies that made me. I don't know that there's anybody who knows more about the history of film and movies. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. that there's a, there's a bigger movie buff than Joe Dante. When you listen to him talk, it it it, act, it just blows my mind every time. Like his knowledge of of like past movies and movie and current movies, he just seems like he's just a sponge for film knowledge. Yeah, and I think he certainly brings that knowledge to all the movies he directs. And you know, it's it's kind of a bummer that he's never really had a lot of hits. I mean, he had one hit with Gremlins. But for the rest of his career, you know, he had he has all his movies, I think, are looked upon as cult classics now. Yeah, there's but, so many that are great. I mean, all and all, you know, and you, all these movies, I mean, the Burbs included, um, are considered classics now, but none of these movies were really appreciated when they came out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a reflection of someone who was kind of pushing the envelope. You know, he was always blending genres. He was always kind of taking an old school approach to movies, chose really interesting movies and and really didn't, uh, you you know, settle on doing like generic, safe sort of Oscar winning films. Certainly, I'm sure he wishes that he was that filmmaker, but I but I I don't know that you can be upset with with a career like the Joe Dante has had everything from starting out with working with Roger Corman, doing movies like Piranha, to doing a com- the most insane sequel ever made, in my opinion, with <laughs> Gremlins 2. I mean, just and utterly al- off the wall. And also kind of modernizing the werewolf genre in 81 with The Howling. That movie changed everything, and I think that same year or the year after, there were multiple werewolf movies to come out too. And it kind of changed things for that as far, and also with the um, Twilight Zone movie, which, you know, think what you will of it, his part in that is easily the best segment of the Twilight Zone movie. In mixing humor and romance, science, and uh, just off-the-wall humor with a movie like Inner Space. Love Inner um, Space. Just a great family film with explorers. Um, and, and recently, not you know, I'd say fairly recently in the last 10 or 12 years, he made a movie that I really, really enjoyed. It's called The Hole. I think it would have benefited from having better actors, but it's actually like a, it, it does have Bruce Dern in it though. And it is, I think pretty creepy and it has an old school vibe to it. And it's one of the few, I think, horror films that is, can be, you know, watched by a younger audience, but mm-hmm. is also, I, I think has some creepy tones and it's a movie that I highly recommend people to go check out. Um, yeah. He also did a few episodes of Eerie, Indiana, which a lot of people say it was a very short-lived show, but a lot of people say it was kind of the, the you know, 
kid version of the X-Files and I always talk about that show but it was kind of changing things or just further advancing things and Joe Dante has always had a great imagination and in some ways I feel like he's always been ahead of the curve before it was cool. He's a filmmaker who's very confident, very strong in his, his sensibilities and his style and it's clearly been appreciated now with all his movies, like I said, being considered like these classics. But at the time, of course, was not recognized. And I'm glad that, you know, I wish that he was, you know, someone would give Joe Dante the the, the money to direct a big budget movie again. But I'm glad that he has so many of these movies that we can revisit and appreciate for, you know, the rest of our lives. The thing about him, and just to kind of end end this here, like you were saying, he makes these kind of magical and fantastical movies, but not in a superhero or completely out there sort of way, because he makes these magical movies that still feel relatable. And I think what that boils down to is because he is a movie lover, and he's been... He was that kid that like went to the movies and and spent a you know would spend hours at the movies and that's what he grew up on and that's what he has or wants to transfer to to others in his movie making. I think it is a genuine love of communicating a story and not that he would not want to do something that is reality based, but I think that his version of reality are these magical interpretations. You listen to any current discussions with him and uh, he just has the level in his voice you can hear it he has this level of excitement of a kid you know when he's talking about films it's 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 really something wonderful we'll end it here we'll you know we'll come back and do a little wrap-up stuff but i want to have time to uh hear from our good buddy justin hayward from chicago he is a huge fan of joe dante as well and i'm really excited to hear him uh give us a little insight on joe dante and break down a scene from a verb so here he is this is justin hayward i recently read an article by the esteemed cinematographer david mullen where he talks about what looks quote real in cinema disclaimer even though i personally agree these opinions do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this podcast anyway in the article mr mullen says quote realism in modern cinematography is sometimes merely the artificial copying of artifacts from documentary work in which there are uncontrollable elements or moments causing certain artifacts focus problems lens flare underexposed and thus grainy or noisy images. It feels like reality because it looks rough, unplanned, unmanipulated, though the images may be as thoroughly designed and executed as the slickest shot ever made in a classic Hollywood movie. In other words, realism becomes just another form of artificial style, only this one conjures up associations with documentaries and thus gives the movie a false sense of honesty in its recreations. Then he goes on to say, this approach, used appropriately, can enhance the drama of a scene or an entire movie but it sometimes can be used as a crutch by some filmmakers to avoid actually doing the hard work of making the movie, i.e. taking the time to think about the appropriate use of light and shadow to tell this particular story, and then executing that creative idea. This desire, by some, to avoid thinking about controlling or creating light even extends to other issues like composition. They fall into the trap of seeing the camera merely as a passive recording tool that follows whatever action occurs in front of it. He basically goes on to talk about how a lot of modern filmmakers claim to have substituted genuine classical filmmaking craft in favor of laziness. 
but do their best to hide their being lazy under the umbrella of realism. Again, not all filmmakers use this style because they're being lazy, but a handful of them do, and I happen to totally agree with Mr. Mullen on this point. They either don't want to or don't know how to do the hard work Mr. Mullen is referring to. Think about the scene in The Burbs when Hans, one of the Klopek neighbors, comes out of the house for what seems like the first time and all the people on the block are outside watching in utter suspense. The whole cast lifts this moment with each of their brilliant and unique performances, but I'm going to stick to some of the technical stuff. There's a dolly into every one of their looks of shock as the music builds and builds. There's that shot behind Hans that dollies around him in a circle as he scratches his neck and reveals all the neighbors stone cold staring at him. The score just gets louder and more intense until Hans finally goes back inside. This leads Ray and Art to start daring each other to go knock on the door. When they finally both agree to do it, here comes that big score and this time it's even more intense as the camera cuts between a tracking shot with Ray and Art up the sidewalk with slow zoom-ins on everybody's eyes, including the dogs, which is hilarious. The scene is simultaneously intense and funny, which isn't something you often see, and pretty much sums up the tone of the entire film. But that wasn't on accident. Notice the way the shots cut together like pieces of a puzzle. Each one fits snug in its place until it makes up the whole scene. But the scene doesn't work with just the meticulously planned shots and those great performances. There's a giant piece of the puzzle that simply doesn't exist until long, long after shooting, but something the director Joe Dante had to imagine in his head while planning those great shots. There's a YouTube video where somebody took the end award sequence in the first Star Wars movie and removed the music. It's really funny because without the large John Williams score accompanying those images, the whole scene feels awkward and strange. It would be the same way here. No music on that scene in the burbs, and all the dramatic shooting would feel out of place. You can't zoom into a dog's eyes and not have a big booming score behind it. But the music isn't added until months after shooting and editing are finished. So if you watch it with the sound off, it's quite clear Joe Dante was not planning on this scene being quiet. He certainly chose those specific shots in a way knowing the score was going to be 50% of the scene, even if it was only in his imagination when shooting. Point is, the puzzle pieces of shots held together by the intense score and extended by those great actors isn't something that just falls into place completely unplanned. It takes time to plan and work out all this long before you get to set. That's what I think David Mullen meant when he said filmmakers doing the hard work. I find Joe Dante to be the epitome of a classical filmmaker that does the hard work. Every shot in the burbs feels meticulously calculated, thought out, and executed for maximum effect, which is a really funny, mostly family-friendly horror comedy. You know, that old trope. Look, if all this sounds obvious, it's because it is. But there are a lot of people out there that don't know what they don't know. I've seen filmmakers call Quentin Tarantino a hack, which is fine if that's your opinion, but then don't you dare show me your independent film that looks like it was written and directed by a 12-year-old that's never seen a movie in their life. After that, your opinions will forever fall on deaf ears. There's a famous George R.R. Martin quote where he said, art is not a democracy, meaning it's not fair. Unfortunately, not everybody's born with equal talent. You want to be a professional singer, but you can't hear pitch? Sorry, no amount of studying is going to change that. But how many people made fools of themselves in front of millions on those singing competition shows throughout the years, honestly believing they could be as good as Kelly Clarkson if only given the chance? At 41, I could never make a movie as good as Heart 8 with a $100 million budget, let alone been able to make it at 25 with a $3 million budget like Paul Thomas Anderson did. I am not now and will never be on that level. But I think that's a good lesson for every artist to learn early on, because... While I mostly agree with George Martin, I also think you can be the best at what you're capable of being as long as you're not so self-delusional that you don't even know what that is. The late great director Sidney Lumet said every filmmaker needs to be a little self-delusional or they would never make anything. I agree with that, but if that self-delusion goes too far, you might wind up that guy that abandons the hard work of making a movie for, quote, realism. 
Well, thanks so much for that, Justin. We always appreciate it when you come on the show. It's so awesome. I, I, I love having another person on here to uh, give us some insight and, and uh, enjoy this movie with us. Well, let's get into our picks of the week. Um, my pick was Joe Dante's 1993 movie Matinee. Lindsay, you went with Tom Hanks, The Man with One Red Shoe. Yes. What can you tell me about that movie? Well, Justin, as I was thinking about this pick of the week for the Burbs, there are so many choices that come to mind. So many great movies that either star the actors in the Burbs or any Joe Dante movie, really. But I chose The Man with One Red Shoe, starring Tom Hanks, because it is easily the lesser known and also co-stars the always wonderful Carrie Fisher and is kind of the epitome of a great Sunday afternoon movie. It's an entertaining, even if somewhat ridiculous movie. All right, so The Man with One Red Shoe is a light spy thriller with a touch of romantic comedy. It's kind of like a spy versus spy type of plotline. One CIA higher up trying to outwit and oust the CIA director out of a job by creating this scandal so he can become the director. Really, though, this plot doesn't matter too much in this movie. You, you, you get what's going on. Tom Hanks's character gets involved when the at-risk-of-being-disgraced CIA director has him picked at random as a decoy to fool his adversary, saying that Hanks is a special agent that can absolve him of any scandal. It's not an involved plot, although it tries to kind of act as such. The comedy is built upon basically misunderstandings and misinterpretations, and Hanks is oblivious that he's being tailed, investigated, and messed with by government operatives trying to figure out how he's connected to the CIA director's cocaine smuggling scandal. (laughs) It's really funny to explain this out loud because it's so ridiculous and paranoid. If you're entertained by spy-type movies, this one has all of the tropes, like a dark gun loaded with a knockout drug, tiny cameras used for secret photos, underground government installations and bugs planted everywhere, wiretaps, white bands. I mean, it's all right there. Although The Man with One Red Shoe is no knee slapper of a comedy, the story itself is like kind of jumbled, but it's the casting that makes this movie work. It's funny how that happens, though. With a lesser talented cast, I'm sure this movie would have been a complete stinker. It's not like it did well at the box office, but everyone in this cast is very talented and was able to propel it forward. On top of being nearest the beginning of Hanks' career, looking back now, we can see how his comedic timing has stayed solid for 40 years. God, that's so crazy. 40 years. Carrie Fisher and Jim Belushi play a married couple who are best friends and co-musicians in a symphony with Hanks, who Fisher is also having an affair with. Dabney Coleman serves up some straight-laced buffoonery, as he does so well, as the CIA deputy thinking Tom Hanks is some kind of genius spy outwitting him the whole movie. Laurie Singer, Charles Durning, Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley, and a ton of other recognizable faces from the 80s and before round out this savable by casting light thriller comedy. I think I enjoyed this movie as a kid because Tom Hanks is so animated and we see him constantly messed with by secret agent spies so it's a easy way to land some type of sight gag jokes that are kind of all throughout the movie. Two scenes that stick out to me, one involving Laurie Singer's hair getting caught in Hanks' zipper while he awkwardly tries to walk. That's always a 
guarantee for a laugh. But I think my favorite is a somewhat lengthy scene wherein there's no dialogue, only Hanks, Fisher, and Belushi's symphony performing a dramatic classical number while exchanging these knowing glances and while all the CIA operatives and spies are watching in the audience, scrutinizing every move, also giving dramatic, curious, or nothing-here-to-see type looks at one another all over this intense classical performance. The scene really helps ramp up any tension without using any words. It's really brilliant, easy comedy. The Man with One Red Shoe came out in 85, a year after Splash and Bachelor Party, which both put Hanks on the map big time, not to mention multiple previous TV appearances and shows and two seasons of Bosom Buddies. It is really cute to kind of see the beginning of Tom Hanks's career and compare that to how he's blossomed into who he is today. And this is coming from me, a person who, Justin, I know you know this, but I I was not the biggest fan, really, of Tom Hanks. Only a few movies here and there. And I only really liked seeing his face in Money Pit. And that was pretty much it until a long lost friend a while ago made me sit down and actually focus on Joe versus the volcano. And I was finally like, okay, I'm going to get over my unwarranted problem with Tom Hanks. And you know what? I think officially, as of 2019, I'm over my problem. I actually like the guy now. So while The Man with One Red Shoe may not have been a box office smash like basically every other Tom Hanks film, it still serves as a very passable Sunday afternoon movie where you get to see a baby Tom Hanks play the innocent funny man that everyone fell in love with in the 80s. I'm glad you've come around to Tom Hanks. What year did The Man with One Red Shoe come out? It was 85. 85, okay. So this is like three years before Big, before he really... yeah became like a big sensation it was right kind of like it, it, it was when he was getting some traction with some movies and people were recognizing his talent but yeah hadn't had a giant hit i mean splash splash did really well bachelor party did really well but you know not um i need to worldwide go, i need to go back and revisit this one it's been a long 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 time i'm not surprised I think it's it's one of those movies, like I said, it's it's not the greatest movie in the world, but still going back and revisiting it, you know, and for this, I, you know, I watched it three times, actually, and there were numerous moments that, that were a good chuckle, and I think it helps, too, if you like Carrie Fisher and Jim Belushi. Um, I'm, I'm like one of the few people out there that like really loves Jim Belushi. Really? I was like a huge Jim Belushi fan in the eighties. Oh, he's such a cutie in this too. And he's very paranoid. And there's, there's this thing that happens in the eighties where people are cheating on their partners and it's like a source of comedic value and like people get over it eventually or not even eventually, like pretty much immediately. This is one of those things too, where the whole idea of cheating is just a source of comedy, which is, yeah, you know, unrealistic and funny. But The Man with Run Red Shoe, totally worth a revisit. I'll totally check it out soon. So, Justin, I would love to hear you talk about Matinee. I just watched this and, man, was so charmed. Yeah, this is a really charming movie. Um, and this is, I think, one of the, probably one of the last few, like, big budget movies that Joe Dante did. To me, Matinee is sort of like Tim Burton's Ed Wood. It's a period piece. It's about a filmmaker, about a love for a filmmaker, about a love for movies. 
Uh, Matinee is a period piece that takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's loosely based on low-budget film producer, filmmaker uh, William Castle, who was known for doing these really low-budget sort of B-horror movies, but he would actually go theater to theater with them, and he had these gimmicks to where, like, he would put buzzers on the seats for certain movies certain parts of the movies where it would buzz the audience or you'd have a floating skeleton float through the theater and he would always hype them up as being a movie that you shouldn't see you know they're too scary you know you'll get a refund if you if you go running out of theater and so it would pique people's interest especially younger kids thinking like I have to go see it if someone's telling you know grown-ups telling me this is too scary for me to watch I need to see it so he had a lot of gimmicks and a lot of ways to uh, make profits on his films and he was, you know, uh, loved by many filmmakers and influenced on many filmmakers. Uh, John Waters, namely, uh, paid tribute to uh, William Castle when he released Polyester, uh, filmed in Odorama, where you had a scratch and sniff card that was also available in the DVD, where during the movie you could scratch different parts of the card that you can actually smell the scene that was going on. Uh, kind of gross. but uh, And uh, awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. And so... Joe Dante, also a fan as well, uh, sort of fashioned a movie about William Castle. Um, in the movie, uh, the character is is called Lawrence Woolsey, uh, portrayed by John Goodman. He comes to a small Florida town during the Cuban Missile Crisis when everybody was terrified uh, that they were, you know, going to be obliterated by a nuclear warhead, and so there was a lot of fear already in. Uh, John Goodman sort of lands in this small Florida town. He's sort of preying on the fears of people by presenting one of his gimmicky movies. The movie sort of centers on a young boy who him and his brother have recently moved to this town because their father is in the military. So not only do they have a fear of this Cuban Missile Crisis, but they're also fearing for their father and, and other people who are in the military overseas. And it really, I think, is a very innocent view of this time period and how um, people were very fearful. It was kind of a crazy time in American history. Uh, the movie plays tribute to that as well as a love of cinema. Uh, these boys go to the cinema. This is where all the teenagers go and all the kids go to sort of like it's their one moment of like release. It's their one moment of escapism to sort of get away from you know, all the madness that's going on in the world and very much, uh, like, you know, a, a thing that we do today, you know, a similar thing, you know, going into a movie to sort of escape, um, your everyday troubles and, and the fears of what's going on in the world. And it is a very loving tribute to films and filmmakers. Uh, a lot, a majority of the film takes place in an actual movie theater. I think this is like a truly great family film. I think that it, it, it does play a little slow, and I think that maybe some younger viewers might get bored by it, but it really is um, captivating. It's really a lot of fun. There's some humorous moments, and I think there's something for everybody in this movie, and I do think it's one of Joe Dante's like most charming and innocent films and, and really, again, shows why he's like one of, I think, the, the better filmmakers still working today. I really enjoyed watching Matinee. I did feel like it was such a mature family film that if you were to be able to make your kids focus, that they would really enjoy it and find some type of nostalgia within them that they didn't even know was there. And also a good way for parents to kind of connect with kids on that 
imaginary level two of, of going to see a movie. And it also has a, uh, I, I don't want to fail to mention some great, another thing that Joe Dante does uh, bringing in uh, Dick Miller and, and Robert Picardo again in, in great little roles in a really fantastic uh, performance by Kathy Moriarty She's playing so uh, John John Goodman's uh, uh, partner in crime and going town to town to present these movies and she's also an actor in, in the films he does and I'll say too they show a, a, a good portion of the films that the film within a film the movies that that the Lawrence Woolsey John Goodman's character is presenting and they show a lot of the clips of these movies, one of them called Mance, and uh, the film within the film is equally entertaining, and there's also a film within the film that uh, is a very, very short, quick moment of Naomi Watts in one of her first uh, roles, which I, I, I never knew that, and then when I was watching, I was like, man, that looks like Naomi Watts, and I looked it up, and I was like, sure enough, it was her. Yeah, it was funny. I forgot that you had told me that until that scene came up and was like, oh yeah, totally, that's Naomi Watts, look at that. But yeah, Kathy Moriarty, her performance in this was uh, so solid. It was really nice to see her in this role. So those are our picks of the week. The Man with One Red Shoe and Matinee. We'll keep moving on. This is your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow What led me to this week's Murray moment were two things. One, thinking about how ridiculous and paranoid the dudes are in the burbs. And two, how ad-libbing can sometimes work so well in a movie. Since, you know, how we talked about in the burbs, there was a writer's strike, so a lot of actors were allowed to ad-lib quite a bit. Now, when fitting Billy into this, I couldn't help but have the everlasting image of Carl Spackler come to mind, his character from Caddyshack. Now, Carl's story in the movie really has very little impact on the actual plot until the very end, and then it's huge. It ends with explosions after obsession and paranoia have consumed Carl, but instead of it being about satanic neighbors like in the Burbs, it's his intense personal vendetta against a single gopher wrecking the golf course in Caddyshack. Now, Justin, I know Caddyshack isn't your jam, but I grew up with it and absolutely adore it. And those involved with making Caddyshack have never really been shy about talking about how crazy it was behind the scenes of the movie. And I could talk forever on that subject alone, but for this segment, I'm just going to lean on a little bit of Billy's involvement in the movie as it would pertain to the burbs. First off, Billy's character of Carl had no lines in the actual script. Billy ad-libbed everything, from his Dalai Lama speech, if you're familiar with this movie, you, you know what I'm talking about, his Dalai Lama speech, the Cinderella story monologue, all his maniacal dives into gopher hatred, his rather lengthy one scene with Chevy Chase, all his background lines, his PG-rated perving out on the 
older lady golfers, everything. He made it all up on the spot. Whether Caddyshack or the Burbs, ad-libbing isn't easy for everyone. Now, writer-director Harold Ramis gave Billy inspiration for the Cinderella story monologue, but Billy was such a pro at improv by 1979, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Ramis and writer Brian Doyle Murray, Billy's older brother and Second City alum, of course, were both never worried about leaning on Billy for that. Ad-libbing was just a thing that they knew he could do. It's a gamble for some, and liberating for those talented enough to be awesome at improv or be comfortable in a scene with someone, like with Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher, who had done The Man with One Red Shoe by the time they had done The Burbs. All Billy was given in the script for the Cinderella story speech was, and I quote, The sky is beginning to darken. Carl, the groundskeeper, is absently lopping off the heads of bedded tulips as he practices his golf swing with a grass whip. That's it. Nothing. Nothing else. And right before they were set to shoot, Ramus gave Billy some inspiration, telling him that sometimes when he would go out running, he'd talk himself up like he was an announcer, as if to like amp up his game or keep him enthused to keep going. And that was all Billy needed. He'd also been around enough golf in his life, so riffing on that subject was no big deal. And it being at the top of his SNL game, he was primed and able to easily slip into anything that was asked of him. And Ramus knew from their days together at National Lampoons in Second City that he could bank on some comedy gold. They only had six days with Billy to complete these scenes in Caddyshack. And with so little time and nothing written for him in the script, Ramus, Billy, and Brian would just put Carl in different scenarios, describe the action that needed to happen, and Billy would just make up the lines. They just figure out how each scene fit into the movie later. It's so crazy to think that they banked on that. That's really putting some trust in a friend to just go on that. And get this too, the gopher aspect of Caddyshack was nowhere near as big of a deal as it was in the original script. As it turned out, the rough cut of Caddyshack was horrendous, sloppy, and just didn't have anything to tie it together. And it was then that the subplot of Carl and the golf course destroying gopher It was that that brought it all together. Spliced in between scenes of the actual script were all these extra scenes involving Carl's plan to end the gopher's reign of destruction. And now, Billy and that gopher are what people remember most when they think of Caddyshack. In both the Burbs and Caddyshack, all the dudes' destructive paranoia are what caused both movies to come to such explosive endings. Such needless, exaggerated, monumentally explosive endings where all the men involved end up feeling kind of like dummies. I could talk more on Carl Spackler, and I'm sure I will in a future Murray moment, but those times have to be saved for those moments. Ad-libbing and destructive paranoid dudes are the themes for this week's Murray moment. Because you know, had Carl been the groundskeeper in that subdivision in the Burbs, he would have been front and center with those guys and all the action. You always got to call me out on my <laughs> my Caddyshack. Yeah, I do. I don't mind it. I don't hate the movie. You don't hate it? I don't hate it. It just, just it just doesn't do for me what it does for most of its fans. I mean, I think well, yeah, for most of its fans, but I I don't think that you're alone in you know it not being. A, Jeez. I, I just gotta, I mean, 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you out, Justin. Jeez, I don't call you out on all the movies you told me that you secretly hate. Jeez, you can totally call me out on anything that I say that I... I just called myself out on hating Tom Hanks. It's all right. But I'm over it. Maybe you'll get over your hatred But thank you for that Murray day. moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, speaking of a- actors ad-libbing, my favorite ad-lib that I read from The Burbs is Tom Hanks throwing himself on the the gurney at the end of the movie mine too and putting himself into the ambulance and saying (laughs) take me to the hospital i'm sick it's such a funny moment he really just does throw his whole body into the back of that ambulance he's he's really great at physical comedy and improv yeah well thank you so much for that murray moment of course well let's uh is there any you know i know you had a special little wrap up here for the burbs that i'm actually excited to hear about i know this is something it's been something of an obsession with you as well and a fascination over several movies that we've watched throughout the uh, year or so. I'm so glad to finally bring it up because I feel like this is an actor that never got her due. And she was in so many iconic movies. From Silence of the Lambs to... (sighs) Silence of the Lambs to Burbs to Coming to America to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Batman Returns. Okay? Crazy. Multiple episodes of uh, Coach. Also, the Joe Dante series we mentioned earlier, Erie, Indiana. She was in that. And the one that is yet unconfirmed, but I am fairly solid. It was in her wheelhouse and during the time of her reign as queen of canine Hollywood actors. Darla the dog, you might know from the burbs. Uh, She's queenie. She is very, very... She has a lot of scenes in this movie, a few dramatic close-ups. And is uh, Precious in Silence of the Lambs, the dog that's in the well, or the dog that's the the dog that's the pet of the serial killer, Buffalo Bill. And Yeah, she's Precious. Don't make me hurt your dog. Yes, and I, I think maybe her, man, I don't even know what my favorite performance of hers is. Like in Batman Returns, she's delivering a grenade. I mean, this dog is, she's got talent. In Coming to America, there are multiple close-ups and and, and, and one climactic scene. She's facilitating this supremely well-done and comedically edited scene at the end with these close-ups. But I think my favorite performance by Darla was in Chud 2, Bud the Chud, where she does get turned into a chud. And this is kind of where, well, there are a lot of things that fall apart in that movie. But since I was a youngster, there is just one scene that really sticks with me. And um, it, it was Darla's stunt double, which was a obviously stuffed animal dog that was being thrown very obviously at a mailman that you see in the background. But Darla's performance in the rest of that movie as a feral chud-like dog. Man, I mean, I don't know how you can go from comedy to horror to to drama. What she got out of in her performance in Silence of the Lambs, I mean... Maybe maybe one of <laughs> the most famous and, and long-ranging canine actors in yeah. film history. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought this to light, though. She she did uh she retired in Thousand Oaks, California shortly after 
uh, her performance in Batman Returns and passed away shortly after that. A long life, I think around um, 18, I think. Wow. Yeah, she was a Bichon. And um, just as a little side note, um, her trainer said that one of her favorite things was to steal socks. Wow. So, Darla the dog, please, um, the next time you're watching The Burbs or any of these movies that we mentioned, please take into account her performance. Yeah. That she was a solid, tra- solidly trained dog actor. And man, I really hope she she cranked in some treats over over all these yeah. performances. I know when we did The Burbs, I had a feeling this was... This is going to come like because you've talked about Darla many times. I have. It's been a quest to find out Darla's uh, the lineage. How how she started some unconfirmed roles. You know, was this her? I'm not sure because that's the thing. Darla was a shapeshifter. She could look like a poodle. She could look like a Bichon. Quite a, quite a few uh, dogs in the Burbs. You know, and it's true. I think that's a very suburban thing. Everybody's got a dog. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Even even the evil Clopex. And even trained to take a crap on yeah. someone's lawn. I mean, you can't even tell a person to do that. Yeah. So we hope you've enjoyed our episode on The Burbs. I love this movie. It's always so much fun. I'm glad, you know, you were down to do this one. I love your um, love for The Burbs. And I also think it was a perfect uh, kickoff to the month of October. Yes. As we've always said, October is our favorite month. Halloween is our favorite holiday and we did this last year I'm glad we're continuing this tradition Uh, we're going to do an extra episode we're going to do all horror movies for the month of October we're kicking things off with Candyman a real great 90s horror film that I think is definitely underseen we're going to follow that up with the 1988 remake of The Blob one of my faves yeah and then uh, you get a bonus episode the week of Halloween we're going to be doing uh, what we've called 80s versus 90s slashers we're going to try to cram in 20 <laughs> years two decades worth of slashers movies and hopefully not an incredibly long episode it's our special 72 yeah. hour podcast <laughs> it's going to get pretty crazy we've got our work cut out for us we've got a lot of slasher movies to start watching so <gasps> that's coming up for you in October if you haven't been following us on social media please do you can find us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook Don't Push Pause Podcast if you'd like to check out older episodes that aren't available on your uh, podcast platforms. Um, you can go to our archives at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Find them all there, all the old episodes. If you like what you hear, if you're on iTunes, please give us a rating, five-star rating if you could. If you stream and don't download, um, please uh, you know download the episodes if you can. It helps, tra- it helps us track our growth and see how many people are listening. Lindsay, you've also uh, been working on our store in our on our website yeah we've got a couple things with our don't push pause logo on it as well as some you might be if you follow us on instagram you might be familiar with our handmade vhs boxes that we have for sale um, hand-stained boxes that we have dismantled original vhs boxes and affixed them to the boxes and inside are the original VHS they're, they're tapes. pretty fun sweet little keepsake or storage boxes keepsake make great presents there's pictures of them on uh, on our store you can check them out um, yeah. and as well as other merch um, with the Coffee Don't Push cup, Pause uh, logo on it yeah. pin you need it yeah. we got it yeah so so check it out 
uh, maybe there's something you might like and uh, all money from that goes to help uh, keeping the, the podcast going and, and helps us uh, fund the things we need to do to keep this thing running and, and give you guys a great and professional show so until next time I'm Justin Johnson and I'm Lindsay Reber thanks so much for listening thank you <laughs>